0: We're going to finish off our, our series, just exploring our mission statement uh, this morning. It's been a great series, and I'm hoping you'll uh, have something to share uh, after this. Uh, but we've been looking at our statement of Jesus at the center, and over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what that means to, as Jesus being at the center of our lives, at our church, of our community. And last week, I started talking about Jesus being at the center of our world. And last week, I mentioned that when we talk about our world, I define that as two interconnected parts that we have on one side, humanity, and on the other side, we have creation. If you want another word for that, we have society and we have ecology. And last week, I teased the fact that we are priests. We are priests in relation to humanity. And so this week, to kind of finish off the series and to close this section of Our World, I'm going to explore us being stewards in relation to creation. And I thought this week, seeing that we're going to talk about creation, I thought, what better place to start from? And what better place to go to uh, than Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so we're going to read a big chunk of scripture this morning. I do not apologize that to, for that at all. But we're going to start from Genesis chapter 1 uh, and verse 1. And we're going to read into chapter 2 and up to verse 15. If you have a Bible with you, it'd be great if you could find that. Uh, as you find that, just to, just to mention, when I talk about priests and stewards, there's a lot of overlap in these two terms. Uh, the last thing I want you to do is when we get to the end of this uh, today is the last thing I want you to think as well, I'm more of a priest than a steward. Uh, it, it doesn't work like that. As humanity, as I mentioned last week, we, we are called. Uh, we are made to be priests and we are made to be stewards. I'm hoping you found that uh, by now, Genesis chapter one. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV this morning. I normally read from the NLT, uh, but I'm going to read them from the NRSV. and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a bit later, but there's a nice rhythm. There's a beautiful rhythm to this poem, this Genesis poem in the uh, in the nrsb genesis says this in the beginning when god created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from god swept over the face of the waters then god said let there be light and there was light and god saw that it was good and god separated the light from the darkness god called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening And there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And so it was. God called the dome sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw it was good and then God said let the earth put forth vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it and so it was and the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it and God saw it was good and there was evening and there was morning The third day and God said, let there be lights in the dome, of the sky to separate the day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And so it was God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And so god created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind and which with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind and god saw that it was good and god blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day And then God said, let the earth bring forth creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And so it was. And God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good, including spiders. Sorry to add that in there, but you need to know that. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. According to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the earth and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the earth, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the earth and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has breath of everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and so it was god saw that everything he had made and indeed it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the multitude and on the seventh day god finished the work he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done so god blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on that day, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day when the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, earth and the heavens, when no, when, when no plant of the field was yet on the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to eat, for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of the Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. delium and onyx stone are there. The second river is Gihon, and one it is one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. They're fantastic passages on me. I know that's a big chunk of scripture, uh, but I don't again, I don't apologize uh, for reading that to us. And we will come back to them in a moment. A number of years ago, my my youngest son, Aiden, who's downstairs at a minute, and he's going to cringe because I've mentioned his name. Uh, he was addicted to a computer game called Minecraft. Uh, he's not. He wasn't the only one. My my other lad was addicted to it too. And I'm sure if I look at some of the kids who are on here, uh, I'm sure they know what this game is. For those of you who have somehow miraculously escaped the news of this computer game, uh, the premise is really simple, as the name suggests: you mine. And then you craft. It's what it's a kind of game that we call a sandbox game. And so, like the sandboxes or sand pits that you may have played in with, like as a child, these games are creative environments. The idea is that you scoop up and you excavate the material of the game around you. And you use it to build whatever you like. Now, in the case of Minecraft, when you first enter into Minecraft, you are you are launched into this unblemished canvas, this land stocked full of resources that are, are ready and waiting for you to breathe your personality and your vision all over it. And so in the Minecraft worldview, every every nanobate nanobite of this pixelated world belongs to you. And you are free to do with, with it whatever you desire to do with it. And as long as it's allowed within the program and limits of the game. Now, now, as a dad who takes a big interest in what his kids are into, uh, and, a, as a, and as a self-admitted big child in computer games, I took an interest in this game. And so I decided to tag along with Aiden and I thought I'd join in with him and his adventures in Minecraft. And so the pair of us decided to join together and we decided to cast our artistic vision all over this land. But, but that's where the problems began. Now, why did it begin? Because it goes without saying that you can't build the world as you would like it when there's more than you just on the scene. And so me and Aiden clashed. Now, why did we clash? Well, well, call me a traditionalist, and maybe it's the engineer in me, but when a computer game offers me the raw materials of brick and stone or wool and I want to build a wall, I'm probably going to avoid the latter. Because in my mind, wool probably lacks that integrity, I think, is required of a wall, not, not even to consider the, the, the devastation that would happen if there was a large torrent of rain and what would happen to your house made of wool. But, but Aiden, he, he doesn't follow those kind of rules. For Aidan, wool was everywhere. It was wool walls, wool roofs, wool fireplaces. And whenever he ran out of wool, then he would decide to build with slime. You're probably glad Aiden's not in the construction industry and I'm pretty glad he isn't too. But we didn't just clash on materials. We we clashed on color schemes. Again, it, they they created tensions for us. Now, again, I'm a traditionalist. I wanted sandstone walls. I wanted terracotta roof tiles. I wanted oak panelled flooring and all in natural, realistic hues. I, I didn't think that was too much to ask, but Aiden didn't keep to those rules. His his world was this was this vibrant contrast of colors, this explosion of color everywhere, almost like it had been caught between a giant game of paintball and a holy festival. It was it was it was beautiful in one way, but just everywhere. So we clashed our wills collided We this and this world that we were crafting just got caught up as collateral damage in the procession of our egos. And instead of a paradise, there was just a dystopia and just disharmony. Now, I'm joking, of course, I, I say we clashed. We we had a lot of fun together and, and I must admit, Aidan's giant woolen statue of SpongeBob SquarePants looks rather nice, stood next to my nice traditional granite grey Norman castle. But unfortunately, though, uh, the real world as we look at it in the, in the real world, the consequences aren't so humorous because for many of us in our world, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, how we see creation, how we see the world around us isn't too dissimilar to the Minecraft worldview. We see the earth as a giant sandbox stocked full of resources that we can be that can be exploitively utilized without any restraint. Now, this hasn't always been the predominant view. It's actually quite a modern way of viewing our world. And up to about 400 years ago, humanity naturally understood that it was interdependent of nature and the world around us, that there was an ingrained mutuality between humanity and our planet. We knew, for example. That we were dependent upon seasons and weather patterns in order to grow our food and to farm, we knew that fields had to be looked after, had to be maintained, and most importantly, they had to be left to rest. If it went dark outside because of winter or shift in the seasons, then human activity had to stop, and it had to lessen because of that and the only engine power that we had well was the only engine power we had to shape our environment with was was bodies, whether it be human bodies or animal body. So things took longer to build, change was slower. And it was less of a shock to our ecosystem and our environment around us. Now, that's not to say that it was perfect, it wasn't. It wasn't perfect. But because humanity had to partner with nature in order to do anything, there was a balance of sorts, we knew that there was uh, there was something life giving about our planet. And that in return, we understood too that we had to be life giving back to it. And so it is a natural limit and a natural responsibility imposed upon us to take care of the ground that we came from and the ground that we were dependent upon. But then that all changed and it changed rather rapidly as well. And so after a millennia of mutuality, we stopped partnering and we started to dominate. And some people suggest that this change came around about the 1600s and it was led by such voices like Sir Francis Bacon in around about 1623 and bacon's philosophies bacon's worldview and others like him they started to see this natural limit as a as a problem to humanity's potential greatness we could be better than this if we could shake off the limits and the chains of nature and instead he encouraged us that we should follow and we should hound nature in her wanderings. in other words he he and people like him encouraged us that it was time for people to to entrap and to dominate the world Instead of being dictated by it, and so this was a, a start of an epoch called uh, the industrialization of our world, and and within a century from the 1600s, within a century of that, uh, it, the way we related to our world changed dramatically, especially within the West and especially within Europe. Within a hundred years of steam engines appeared. We began heavily to mine for fossil fuels and raw materials in a way that was exponentially larger than anything we'd done in any other period of history before then. Electricity was about to dawn, and huge factories multiplied and cropped up everywhere. Humanity was suddenly free, as we would like to think, from our relationship with this planet, and our relationship changed. And instead of being one of stewardship, which did involve taking, but we also understood it also involved taking care of the world, and making sure that regeneration and life continued instead of that our relationship became one of purely taking there was a relationship that was non-reciprocal and it was dominance-based extraction to put a term on it and one that it was a it was one that saw the world as a giant sandbox to be mastered and one where its resources could be used at our leisure as james watt put it who was one of the fathers of the steam engine he said it this way that nature can be conquered if we can but find her weak side and we did find her weak side and it turned out to be our weak side as well maybe some would like to guess that we were maybe that weak side of it and it's only within the past 60 years or so that we've begun to appreciate the damage that this period has done and it is still continuing to do and it's only within the past 10 to 20 years that we're starting to take that damage seriously as it impacts our world although there are a number of people who still need to be convinced of that so everything changed and this was the age of industrialist industrialization and it was also the dawning of the scientific revolution but the problem wasn't a scientific one it was a larger cultural shift and the church was also involved in that shift and so theology and bible verses were used to endorse this kind of worldview. And parts of Christianity blessed this regime, this idea that we were meant to dominate. And one verse that was constantly appealed to and pulled out of scripture was one that we just read in Genesis chapter one, which is this, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Now we've used that scripture and we've used it as our divine commission to treat the world like our, our sandbox but we've forgotten that actually this world is God's temple. We're gonna learn some Hebrew this morning. I hope that's all right. I hope you've got your thinking caps on. There won't be a test later and it's all all right if you don't remember this, Uh, but we will certainly learn some Hebrew. But in Isaiah 66 and verse one to two, God boasts. And I love it when God boasts. I think he has some great boasts in scripture. And this is one of my favorites. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you ever build me a temple as good as that? My hands have made both heaven and earth and they are mine. They are mine. See, creation is God's temple. Our environment, our environment isn't a mere resource, just a mere resource. It's sacred space. And in many ways, Genesis 1 is this poetic account of God forming this temple. And I've spoken about that a number of years ago, and I'm not going to repeat that here. But Genesis 1 is obviously a very popular passage and is a hotly debated passage. And it's one that gets argued over a lot when it comes to conversations with science. But the sad thing is, because of how we constantly read this passage in the context of an argument with science, we often miss the beautiful nuances that are contained within it. And we miss the good news of it, that God is both not only just the giver of life and the creator of life but god is also the liberator of life and so in genesis 1 and we're going to explore this this morning god moves chaos to shalom he moves disorder to order he moves fruitlessness to flourishing god liberates the cosmos from its bondage to futility god through each poetic stanza of genesis 1 orders creation by speaking into it and blessing it in consecrating these distinctions and prescribing vocations, and he brings about this functional goodness to the whole of creation. And at the end of it all, God declares it to be very good. And I love that. It's very good. Not only is it very good, but he calls it holy. And then God rests, God takes up residence, God reclines, and He reigns within this temple. And the clues to this ordering work, they're scattered throughout the entirety of this poem. And so in the opening of this account, the world is described as formless and void. And the Hebrew term used there is tohu wabohu, wa, sorry, wabohu, tohu wabohu. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? You can practice that. I know it's Valentine's Day, and it's not quite the language of love, but try that later. It might work. I don't know. Tohu wabohu. That is what that means is disordered, wild, destructive, tangled. It's just a mass of non-functional stuff. And so imagine, if you like, imagine it as a large ball of knotted string, and a God is going to unwind this string, and he's going to knit with it, so to speak, and he's going to turn it into a place that is viable for flourishing life. And so this is what happens as the the poem moves forward. Every day accumulates with goodness emerging from chaos, with knittedness coming forth out of something that was previously knotted. And not only is this emphasised by God saying it was good, but it's also emphasised for the repetition, and you hope you noticed this when I read it this morning, but the repetition of this phrase that there was evening and there was morning. Have you noticed the way it says that? There was evening and there was morning. Sadly, some Bible translations have cut that poetic rhythm out there, but it is there in the original text and a lot of them do keep it So, again, I'd normally read from the NLT, but actually the NLT's dropped that rhythm and it's just got this very boring. There was a second day and there was a first day, which is very dull. And they've done that because we we often think about this as just being a transition of time. But it goes deeper than that. The Hebrew word that we translate as evening is the word erev, And the morning, the word morning is the word bokeh. Now the word "Erev literally means an undifferentiated mixture of elements. Think about it as a tangled mess. And Boca comes from a root meaning to clarify. So you can see how they work for evening and morning. You can see how it goes, Erev to Boker, from evening to morning, from darkness and murkiness to the clear light of day. But there's something deeper and they express something deeper, that there was a tangled mess, and then there was clarity. There was chaos and then there was order, there was mess, and then for the liberating word of God, there was goodness and there was beauty. Now, why does this matter? Well, because before we come to that verse, that verse that's often been used to, to kind of promote us and our extractive attitude to our world, before we come to the ideas of subduing and dominion, it's important to reflect upon how God rules creation and how God orders creation. Because humanity, after all, is made to be God's image, God's representatives, God's ambassadors. We are to take our cue from God. And God, when we what we see in his promise, God doesn't make a mess of the world. He takes care of it. He tidies it. He orders it. He tends to it. He helps it flourish. Or as Isaiah 45 and verse 18 puts it, he puts it this way, for the Lord is God. He created the heavens and the earth and he put everything in, in place and he made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos, that He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of tohu wabohu. Now, humanity is given the vocation to replicate this pattern. We're meant to copy this pattern, to uphold shalom within creation. We're permitted by God to make use of the world. But we are not permitted by God to make a mess of the world we're, we're, or to make it some out of balance crazy place. And this is spelt out for us in these verses. This verse that gets plucked out in Genesis 1.28. That's what these verses mean. We're told to have dominion and told to subdue. But, but the problem is how we understand dominion and how we understand what subduing is about is, has messed with us a little bit. Now, again, in the Hebrew, the words are radar and kabbash. They're nice words, radah and kabbash. And radar is often translated to have dominion. Again, it doesn't matter if you can't remember the words. Don't worry. So it's often translated to have dominion, but it does not mean to be domineering. More accurately, it means to have authority. And it implies a depth of knowledge, a depth of understanding. And most importantly, it it, it defines a responsibility for. You have a responsibility for this. In other words, radar dominion is about a duty of cur. God is putting humanity in charge of creation. We are stewards of God's temple, and we will be held accountable to God for curing for it. If you want a, if you want a scriptural parallel of sorts, if it helps you out, Joseph is given authority over Egypt by Pharaoh, if you remember that story. Pharaoh places Egypt in the cur of Joseph's wisdom. And it's sorry, in, into Joseph's wisdom and into Joseph's cur. but Joseph is not given permission to exploit Egypt and neither does he own Egypt, he's not free to do whatever he likes, he represents the rule of someone else. He has authority as a duty of kher. Rada, the other word is kabash nice word Kabash. and it's translated subdue. And we can often misunderstand this to mean domineering and abusive or as if it permits us to use any means necessarily to bring things under our control but that's not what Kabash is about it's not forceful it's not dominant it's not about being controlling it actually means to pacify to soothe and it's it's about calming something down so that it's restored to its own natural state its own natural this, this, this position, so to speak, it's not about in other words, us having control or bringing something under our control. It's allow, it's about bringing things under their own self control. And when you think about it this way, if you want to help, if it helps you think about it, like calming a panicked animal, or think about it, like calming down a hysterical person or a fearful and tearful, a fearful and tearful child, it's about Subduing them in that way, calming them down. And when we think about a Genesis poem, that's exactly what we witness God doing. That God takes Erev, a mess, there's something that's destructive and chaotic and disordered, and he brings it to Boca. He calms it down. And so it's functioning as it should be. And so to have dominion and to subdue, it's not about domination and exploitation. It's about protecting and it's about curing. In case we miss this, because we are prone to miss it, we all are the same thing again is repeated over again in the second account in Genesis chapter two. So God forms Adam Adam from the dust of the earth and the term for the dust of the earth is Adamah, earth and Adam Adam and Adam and those two words already show this kind of kinship and bond between ourselves and our world and God gives Adam a job to do in verse 15 of Genesis two and that job is this. He's to till, and he's to keep the garden. Again, the words in Hebrew are Obed and Shema, and we translate them till and keep. But Obed means to serve, and it has this idea of having a respect for us. So we don't just serve because we're told to, we serve because we respect and we revere. And Shema is not a possessive kind of keep. It's not kind of like, this is yours, keep it. It's, it's protect, look after keep it safe now if you're an american police officer the words serve and protect are blazoned on your car and your vehicles and your badge and it's taken as an oath of duty that your duty is to serve and protect but they are the same words that apply to us as well in these two accounts that humanity our stewardship of the earth is to serve and protect see we think we can often think the world is our plaything that it's something disposable and in certain Christian theologies, it's even been endorsed that we can, we can do with, what, with it whatever we like because God doesn't really care about it and God's going to throw it away anyways. And some people say that. But these two terms of till and keep, they echo what we've just read in Genesis 1, that we're given dominion, but we're not called to be dominant. Our authority has parameters to it, rules to it. We are to enhance creation. We are to care for it. We are to help it function and flourish. And it's our mandates as stewards of God to do that. But they do not permit us to exploit it and to plunder it and to rape it for everything it's got. And so like the societies of old understood this, we can take from the earth. But our relationship is not just a case of taking, it's also got to be about taking care. Now, what does any of this mean for us practically? Well, well, we could make a huge list. We could make a huge, huge list, I suppose. We, we could talk about taking global warming seriously. We could talk about the dangers of our consumer and the throwaway culture that is very popular today. We could talk about the problem of litter. We could talk about the plastic pandemic. We could talk about ethical and sustainable farming and produce. All those things are good things to talk about. They are all important and they are urgent conversations. And so maybe you can have a chat about some of those in your life groups if you're still meeting or in your homes. And you can talk about practically about how we take care of our world and the life that lives in our world and finds home in our world, because that's important. Of course, I have a bit of a problem uh, because I'm not really a fan of wasps, uh, but I'll have to pray about it. And I'm sure I'm sure God will fix my heart on that at some point uh, and 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 pray about that for me. That'd be great. But the problem I have, if we if we talk about it that sense of here's what we must do, if we do that, if it if it just becomes about imposing rules down upon people, then we don't really get to the heart of the problem, because if our problem's dominance, dominating people doesn't rectify the issue, does it? We're just we're just we're just changing. We're not changing the rules. We're just we're just following the same thinking. So it has to start with our own thinking. It has to start with our own hearts. It starts with our viewpoint and our theology. And so if we think God doesn't care about our planet, if we think that all God cares about is souls, that if all God think cares about is humans and us, then we've got to allow God's spirit to move upon us and change us. Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 21, and I read this verse the other day, he says that the creation itself is waiting to be set free from its bondage to death and decay. And he writes further on that the whole of creation has been groaning for this. And that we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit moving in us, that we also groan along with it and in rhythm with the Spirit. And so maybe this starts by us turning away our ears from the churning cogs of our industrial society. And it means us starting to listen instead to the groaning of God's Spirit and the groaning of God's creation. What I do know is that God is already up to something, something that already heals and restores our world, something that connects both our society that I talked about last week and our ecology. And that when we look at resurrection life, then resurrection life, which is our hope as Christians, it's resurrection life that we look forward to. It isn't about throwing away the world, it's about reclaiming and restoring creation. We have this prayer that Jesus teaches us, don't we? And it's one that we we, we pray maybe daily, but let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, that God's kingdom, God's will, God's desire would happen in our environment, not just on our world as in society, but wider than that, also in our world, in our ecology. The beautiful thing is when you read the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of a day when God will reign and that when nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And you can read that in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4 and Micah chapter 4 verse 3. I love that imagery. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. I love that because it's very relevant to what I've been talking about these past two weeks. About last week, I was talking about the the hostile fractures within our human society. And this week, obviously, our our extraction of our environment. And both of these things are actually connected to each other. But what the prophets promise us, that there'll be a time when when humanity will repent of its infighting and it will return to its vocation of tending and keeping this creation temple of God. That we will stop having swords and we'll start having plowshares and pruning hooks in the book of Acts in chapter 3 and verse 19 to 21 Peter preaches this he says repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send his Messiah appointed to you that is Jesus he must remain in heaven until a time of universal restoration that God has announced long ago through his holy prophets. The time of universal restoration, I love that. The time, as Revelation 21 and verse five powerfully puts it, when God makes all things new. Not all new things, but all things new. Restoration, renewal, creation, and humanity set free from its bondage to death, and decay we're waiting for that finale we're waiting for that but it's not a passive wait it's not let's sit on our hands and do nothing because we also understand as christians that god through the life the death and the resurrection of jesus has already launched that project into our world. God is moving us once again from tohu wabohu into flourishing life. And we're called to participate in that kingdom of God. It's what we pray for. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom of God is not about abandoning our planet. It's not about abandoning humanity. It's not about abandoning abandoning the earth of, of our world. It's, it's about God's reign of our world. As Paul expresses it in Ephesians chapter 1, He writes this, that God's secret plan has now been revealed to us, that at the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth, and on earth. And so as people who recognize the centrality of Jesus in our world, who recognize that it's God's temple, as people who are participating in what God is up to in our world, as people who acknowledge the authority that Jesus has been given, then maybe, just maybe, there should be something developing within our lives that has a deep concern, a deep and tender concern for what actually belongs to God and not what belongs to us. I suppose if I could, if I was bold enough, If I was bold enough to sum up uh, this series of our mission statement, if I was bold enough to try and wrap it up in some wording about the kind of character that we are and what this means for us in lives, then then maybe I'll kind of put it like this and I'll close with this. That we are the people that believe that the prophet's hope has come to pass in Jesus of Nazareth. That God, who mysteriously became man, took on the power of sin and death at the cross and he overcome it in his resurrection. And that through Jesus, God has begun to make all things new, that God's good creation, including our world and humanity that was once unraveling is now being restored. And we believe we're a part of that project because the New Testament claims that the church is the group of people who have embraced the way of Jesus who have tasted his life, who have been sent into the world to announce that through Jesus, everything is being restored. We are the people who are working alongside that restoration in our lives, in our church, in our community, and in our world. And for that reason, we refuse to embrace some escapist spirituality, some escapist religion. We don't hope for heaven while our world spins out of control. Instead, empowered by the God spirit, And guided by our conviction that through Jesus, God is reclaiming his world. Instead, we embrace a life that is characterized by faith in the God who is able to overcome everything that unravels our world. Hope that one day God's restoration project will be finally complete. And love for God, for people, and for the creation that he so desperately loves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, and we declare this morning that we, as your people, we declare that you are Lord. You are Lord, we recognize your authority. Lord God, we recognize, as we read last week, I know during Kids Life, that that wonderful commission statement, Lord God, that you announced that everything on heaven and earth has been given to you, every authority, Lord God. And so we recognize your authority. Lord God, and not only do we recognise your authority, but we recognise, as Colossians remember, reminds us in that wonderful hymn, we recognise that this is your creation, Lord God, that it was made through you, but that it was also made for you, and we pray that you help us, Lord God, to remember that that this is your world, that you help us to to remember that before you, you have you've called us to stewardship, Lord God, you've called us to priesthood, you've called us to protect and to tend, and to take care, and not just to take from this creation of yours, Lord God. So help us, Lord God, to use the resources around us wisely. Help us by your spirit, Lord God, to join in with your movement, Lord God, with what you are up to, to help us, Lord God, to teach us, Lord God, to how to move chaos into beauty, Lord God, and how to take a mess and, and turn it into a masterpiece into our world, Lord God. We pray that you would move through us by your spirit, that we will be your people, oh God, that we people do recognize that you are at the center of our lives, of our church, of our community, and of our world. In Jesus' name, amen.